always ending in an octave higher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Riff Podcast. I am a co-host, Noah Levy, and along with co-host Rob Janik. Um, today, we have another very special guest. I always say that all of our guests are very special. Um, we don't only say that to make them feel good. We say it from the truth, you know, a little bit of both. No, I'm kidding. It's the truth. Um, today's very special guest is Keith Higgins, or Keith R. Higgins, if you want to find him on Medium. Um, Keith is amazing. I've talked to Keith before. Um, a few times actually, because I first met Keith um, in our album of the month club, which was almost a month ago as of this recording. Um, and if ever you're listening, um, is hosting our, our next one with the Samba album. But Keith introduced me to the glory of Van Halen. So as you could probably tell, Keith knows a thing or two about really good music. Um, and that's why we have him here. How are you doing today, Keith? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. What? What'd you listen to today? Did you listen today, to any good music? Well, good is subjective. I've been listening to the new Counting Crows incessantly. Mm. So that's very, very, very good, I think. Probably the best thing they've done, in my opinion, in, in years. And again, like I wrote about, I don't know if you guys read the piece, it's with the Counting Crows, I've always, and I love, I love them. There's always like three or four really good songs. All they've done this time is take those three or four really good songs and put them out and just call it a suite. So you've got four really solid, solid Counting Crows songs. And is this record only for those four songs or is it filled with other tracks? Well, if you buy the uh, vinyl, it's side A is the four songs and side oh. B is the song, the long the mythical song August and Everything After which was the title of their debut album and if you're of a certain age you're like why isn't there a song called that on the album well it only took what 27 30 years but <laughs> that's on the b-side of the vinyl and I don't think that song is streaming I'm sure you can find it somewhere but it's certainly not streaming on Spotify that I saw do you think the name of the song or like using the name of a song um, that they used for the name of an album um, almost 30 years ago, do you think that's trying to tell their audience something like maybe it's the end or maybe just kind of an homage to the past? Uh, I, uh, I might submit that it was actually just a song that was laying dormant oh, and that they just that they just chose to revisit. That would be that would be that's pure speculation. No, it, it happens. That riff that I just played for you guys, um, full disclosure, I didn't make it just five minutes before the show. Um, I kind of played around with it like a few months ago, but I just, I guess I never did anything with it. So um, you can't always create new ideas every day, right? Even no. if you're the Counting Crows. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, and who knows? And Adam Duritz writes it's a snail's pace anyways, so it... it mm -hmm. Could have taken him 30 years to write it. It is interesting how a band like that, and Keith, you and I were talking you know, earlier before the show started about music from our generation, or at least our generation, you know, and what, what we, we did to go see music and listen to music. That band has been around for such a long time. Um, I find it interesting that so many years later, they can still hold the attention of an original fan, which I'm assuming you were, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, do you know, because I, I, I don't know them as well. Obviously, I know who they are. I know their music. Um, but are they the still are, are they still the same lineup for the most part from back in the day? For the most part, you've got I can't name them all, but uh, let's see. There, I think the only rotating members have been the bass player, the drummer, obviously, for some reason. Uh, <laughs> and I think the the keyboard player has has changed but your guitar players and uh adam have been the same for yeah that's that that's interesting because it uh i might as well ask you now um it's fun it's funny the the piece you wrote about drummers uh-huh. uh noah and i were having a conversation a few weeks back or i don't even remember at this point noah but uh we were talking about yeah right and and you would ask me about something about drummers with the bands i worked with or we, we drummers had come up and i was like yeah they are the ones who they're just the the they're the black sheep of every band and then mm-hmm. you know, Keith, you had mentioned well maybe the bass player might be <laughs> probably true too although the bass player gets to be somewhat up front so they're not hidden but yeah there's a stigma to the bass player as well but yeah drummers are always um they're so important to every single band. I mean, you can argue that they might be the most important piece to most bands, and yet they just don't seem to, you know. And road is is it kind of talks about, you know, and, and you can talk about. It. I don't want to talk about it for you because you wrote it and it's great. But um, how some of the best drummers tend to be what we would call maybe session players who oh, yeah. really, yeah. And um, I, I always felt sorry for Alex Van Halen, speaking, circling back to Van Halen, because he's a great drummer, but his younger brother was probably, was one of the greatest guitar players in history. So yeah. his work, no matter how good it was, was constantly overlooked right. by how good his brother was. And I, I, was, I, always, I always felt sorry for Alex in that way. But yeah, I mean, Kenny Arnoff is just, guy is just incredible yeah and he and again I, I i'm not a, a musician and i'm not a, a theorist or anything but he has that very distinct sound you can pick it out anywhere mm-hmm. and it you know and it's from it's from you know his days with john mellencamp and all the studying he did so it's not like he's some guy who just and there's nothing wrong with somebody who picks up a drum set and actually happens to be good at it but he studied you know no joke studied and uh it paid off and i heard him interviewed on a podcast and i don't remember what it was he was promoting his book um and you can hire kenny arnoff to do beats for you wow. you know it's like if i i forget i think he said at the time this is probably six or seven years ago maybe at this point he was like 500 bucks you know if he's interested he'll do it same thing with um what's his name who's the producer the punk producer um, um god remember big black he produced in utero oh um steve albini that's it yeah same thing with him right Sim- similar methodology you can hire yeah. steve albini if he's interested sure. he'll do it you know yeah yeah or, so but yeah and um but you're right some of the best musicians as a whole are sometimes well our session guys right yeah um well, did you see the documentary or Noah? Did either one of you see the documentary? I believe it's called Hired Gun. Mm-mm. I did see that one. Yep. He's in it. Kenny, Kenny's in there. Yeah, yeah, he is. Yep. And they talk about, so Noah, it's basically, 
it's a bunch of the unsung heroes. I guess that's a way to put them. Mm-hmm. Put, uh, it's all the session players um, that you might not know their name, like in Keith's um, article, how, how he phrases but you know their work. And it's guitar players, bass players, drummers, anybody who played, you know, for multiple famous musicians and artists that we all know, but we don't know the guys playing on the record or the touring members necessarily. And it's a, it's a great documentary. I mean, it sheds a little bit of light on uh, some of your favorite artists, maybe not being the nicest people in the world, you yeah. know, to those session players. Um, but it's really, really interesting. And I, it's, it's very cool that you wrote that because, you know, you could have written about Keith Moon, you know, John Bonham, mm-hmm. which, you know, whatever, phenomenal, great, obviously. But, mm-hmm. you know, you guy that, that might not get the, the, the pub uh that any of them or any of those guys get and uh it it's it's a really interesting piece so if you people out there listening haven't read it you have to read it what's the what's the title uh kenny arnoff has the beat there you go um and the interesting about you might not know him but i think i pointed out in the article you've heard his work invariably if you've ever been if you've ever listened to the radio you've heard his work so and I've also been fascinated for years with a drummer by the name of Jim Gordon, who was, uh, he was a studio drummer. He was part of that L.A. scene. What was it? Uh, the Hit the hit, the hit Crew? or Anyway, he was uh, part of that group and uh, played on virtually every classic rock album you can think of. Uh, unfortunately, he was also uh, schizophrenic. Mm. And... He's also most notably known for co-writing Layla. He was a member of Derek and the Dominoes, but he's famous for allegedly having written the piano coda that goes out of Layla. But in 1983, um, Rob, you'll remember this too. I mean, the the music industry was in the crapper from really the late 70s until about 84. And the, and, um, but unfortunately, he his illness took over. He uh, he uh, he murdered his mother. Um, oh my god! Yeah, yep. And through a series of just horrible events, you know, obviously culminating with her unfortunate death. But he's still alive. He lives in jail. He has been up for parole numerous times and been denied parole because he has admitted if he leaves, he won't take his medicine. Wow. And schizophrenia, if you know anything about schizophrenics, the majority of them are not violent. It's just this tiny fraction of them that are violent. He happens to be one that is violent. So, it's just a horrible story. But, but point circling back to drummers, I mean, <laughs> he is a phenomenal drummer. You know, if you, there's a, you can pull out a session for, that he did for uh, All Things Must Pass. You can pull out his drums. Wow from one of the one of the tracks and it's just sick to listen to yeah it's just just incredible but yeah yeah the drummers really do have so much influence over a song or a band mm-hmm. uh, and whether they're session players or band members it doesn't it doesn't necessarily matter um they just they they i mean look they they create the beat they create the rhythm they give you the the you know the fire behind the song and um because they're not out in front and you might not know their face they don't get the credit that you know the singer will get yeah 
And the other documentary I was thinking about, The Wrecking Crew. The Wrecking Crew is a great documentary. It really is. What he is it was, about? It's about studio musicians, Rob, yeah. uh, from L.A. that really, they backed up everybody. Yeah. In L.A. You know? Yeah. It, it, there's a whole, Noah, like, one of the things that, that, that's so interesting to me when people have conversations about music you know, you can you can talk about different eras or different genres, um, but if you go back to the beginning of rock and roll, and you can you know you can argue, you know I would, you can't argue it comes from the blues, but you can argue maybe where rock and roll kind of started or when it really became, you know what we know it to be, um, and so many studios and record companies used these session players for the front people. And they're the players that created the sound. I mean, Motown did it. Mo, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I know I'm veering from rock and roll, but, you know, uh, music was, you can argue, I guess, popular music was created by session players. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's really important history, and it doesn't get the coverage that it necessarily deserves because, you know, I don't know, it's not sexy. They're not out in front. No one cares about the names. They play with different people. So I don't know. But it's always been it's always been a very interesting topic for me. So I, I really did appreciate that that piece because um, people don't write about it often. Do yeah. session players make um, royalties? That's usually, a great, I have no no idea. No, usually they do not. Um, they get paid a fee for their for their time. They get you know. Uh, it's almost like an actor gets a, you know, for SAG, um, they have a rate that they, that they usually charge. Um, some session players, they usually might not get royalties, but, uh, I'm sure it's happened before. I'm sure there's a, you know, there are examples where a songwriter has included them. Um, but usually what'll happen is if they do really well, or they, they, you know, the artist, the songwriter really likes how they play they'll just keep using them, you know? So there's steady income as far as that goes, but typically no royalties will only go to, to songwriters and to record labels, not to the session players. And that what's interesting about the wrecking crew is that a lot of those musicians played on the beach boys, you know, um, that sounds and smile. Yeah. And it's, they're session players, so, but they talk about how they helped yeah. Brian Wilson construct the songs and build on the songs and layer the songs. And Brian Wilson's the only one with the songwriting credit. Yep. They, don't get, they don't get points. They don't get any royalties from it. No. it. This goes back to what we were talking about in the Van Halen thing, um, Van Halen um, album of the Month Club, because Beat It, that's Eddie, right? That's oh, Eddie right. doing that guitar solo, right? But he was just hap- they just happened to be in the same studio. Quincy asked him to come down and play a guitar solo. There were no managers involved. There was none of that, how many points am I going to get, you know, or anything like that. He never made a cent from Beat It. Nothing. Yep. Did it for free. Just came in and did it and went back to work. <laughs> Imagine somebody do doing that today. think about that? Like, isn't there some sort of, like, my if there's like a, a moral muscle in my body, like a muscle just dedicated to morality right now, it feels a little weak. Just kind of hearing this. How so? Well, I mean, 
with, with like the whole Van Halen thing. I, I, I get, you know what? I think it's a case by case basis. Maybe what what did Beat It come out like in the eighties, right? Eighty one, eighty two. Yeah, yeah, right. So yeah. I mean, Eddie Van Halen was already by then like a very well known musician, I, I would assume, and mm-hmm. um, maybe um, he didn't really care for 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 money. Um, I don't know, and, and I mean, there might be evidence of this. Um, because when, when I read that article, I sent you Keith, um, about David, uh, Lee Roth and Sammy Hager, they, Sammy Hager was talking about how, when he first joined the band, um, you know, Van Halen just did not have their finances together. Like they were getting like severely underpaid and like, they did not do a really good job with that. So maybe people like Eddie Van Halen just didn't really give a shit about the money or anything. But at the same time, I think from like a credibility standpoint, maybe if you're not like as well known as Eddie Van Halen um, and you like need that big break um, for your career, it would be nice. Um, I mean, I mean, with Beat It, though, did like people widely recognize Eddie Van Halen as like, oh, that's him? Or did people just not really give a shit? And they were like, oh, that's a cool guitar. Riff. Oh, no, everyone knew it. And they did very little to hide it. I mean, yeah. it's oh, so okay. clearly Eddie Van Halen, and, <laughs> yeah. and it was marketed as such. Yeah. Oh, okay. And I think I think Noah, to your point, because it was Eddie Van Halen, and he was who he was already. Um, maybe the money wasn't as big a deal for him as it might have been for an unknown person who may have gotten stiffed. Um, Eddie did did get notoriety for it for sure, and a little bit of crossover, and that always helps. Um, but you know. Songwriting credits are very, very sticky, uh, sticky topic, I guess, um, because I've worked with a lot of musicians and, you know, it's intellectual property is what it really boils down to. And it really depends on the working relationship you have with other musicians and producers, even, you know, a producer, there's paperwork where a producer will not work with a musician until they figure out how many like keith had mentioned how many points this producer is going to get or you know if his contribution or her contribution is such to the song that it changes the song um they would like to work out a royalty settlement before they really kind of go far in the process um i've given musicians ideas or i've given feedback on songs and Sometimes they take it, sometimes they don't. And if they take my suggestion and it winds up in a song, I don't get songwriting credit for it. It's, you know, I mean, I I could ask for it perhaps if it was really something that was, you know, uh, I don't know, something that I, I really, really wanted to fight for. But it's just the artistic process is strange sometimes. You just kind of collaborate and you help somebody make something sound good and you just want it to work and unless you're a member of the band or the hired producer yeah you're not you're really not going to get any songwriting credit you know it's it's tough too because it turns into an ego thing absolutely you know um it's very very tricky but uh it's an interesting topic because i think most musicians will have their feelings on it and um uh, most collaborators with those musicians will have their feelings on it. And it's like you said, Noah tends to be case by case. I've written a number of plays and that have been produced. Actors contribute 
to the dialogue. And I don't give up the credit. The only time I've ever shared credit was with the director who I was working with. And she'd given me substantive notes and, and, and serious lines. And so I was like, all right, well, let's share credit on this. She's like, are you sure? I'm like, well, yeah, you helped shape it for the better. And oftentimes in a creative environment, those contributions that are made, not always, but often can make whatever the piece is better. It may not, you know, but sometimes it does. If like, for example, if I'm, if it's a play or a script or something and an actor wants to add something and it, it adds something, it's like, why would I be so stubborn just to be like, no, you must say my words. That's foolish, you know? Right. And then it, that it enhances the entire project. But what are you supposed to do? Write every single line or word down that somebody else said and then find a, a monetary value right. for that? You can't yeah. do it. Impossible. Nope. Yeah. As the artist, uh, the actor or, you know, wh whoever, you have to hopefully assume that it's all for the greater good. And if yeah. they benefit as well later on. It doesn't have to come from the specific writing credit. Mm -hmm. uh, it's tough. And it, that's a great point, Keith. It's a really good example because it happens in writing in, in I guess, movie writing and playwriting, just like it does in music. And uh, yeah, it's, it's almost, it's, it's that conversation that you don't want to have, but you know, it, it's probably lurking if there's a lot mm -hmm. of between people. Yep. Um, I've learned over the, over time, it's best to get it out of the way up front as quickly as possible. Mm. Um, because somebody can offer a ton of advice, great, great opinions, great suggestions, and see the entire project transform based on those and wonder if they're going to get anything out of it. Um, so it might be better to do that up front. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky. But Noah, um, I, I don't disagree with your earliest point about this, where, you know, the morality issue you know the bell that bell gets rung um when talking about this it, it, it's human nature yeah i i i think my my point of view on this is that i i'm assuming that most of these people um like like they're depending on their music careers to eventually be the majority of their income or it maybe they're already in that situation um and it's probably the same thing for writing and playwriting movie writing whatever um so i i i mean again like i think it's a case-by-case -case situation like if you're already making money from something else i don't think it's as big of a deal other than like the credibility thing maybe the money thing is not that big of a deal but the credibility like i know for me at least like if if i contribute let's say a riff um or like you know just like a bass line or a drum beat or you know just something to a song i, I want i want a fucking credit for like what I did, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's just, uh, but some people probably think I'm a greedy bastard, but I don't think of it that way because I think of it as, you know, I should be uh, compensated for my work, whether it's financially or, or socially recognized. But that's just me, you know? But, I, uh, you know, I, I, I think um, the way that we behave as actors in a space whether it's the playwriting space whether it's the song creation space just any sort of space 
we're not only the ones who follow the standards and the rules and norms, we're the ones who, who inevitably create it by following it or, or creating something new. True. Yeah. Agreed. And I, I think it happens um, to bring it back to the riff specifically and then the overall world of writing. Um, it happens a lot with writers. You know, I, I, I know um, I've read many articles, Keith, one of yours for sure that I remember and there's many, many others. I know Kevin does it a lot. and Terry does it a lot. Um, I know I've done it. If you get inspired by somebody else's work, mm. comment or an article you reference it and now we can't pay each other technically right. <laughs> but you know if someone made you think of something that created a piece you've written or you want to write give that writer credit because they're the one who mm -hmm. up the whole idea to begin with and you're right Noah. like some credit is is deserved it's it's again that that's human nature it's okay to want that credit i wouldn't call you greedy for it but you also have to and not in the case of writing, but going back to music now, some or, or you know, writing as a, a playwright or a film script. Um, you know, sometimes you do look at the overall bigger picture, too, and, and just, you know, hope that your contributions make it better for everyone, even if you don't get specific credit. It's it, it's 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 a tough situation, but I think um, when you're in it, you deal with it and then you move on. Yeah, there's no there writing. Oh, sorry. Who is talking? Who's going to say something? You were about to say something, Noah. <laughs> okay, cool. Thank you. Um, so so uh, a few things on this. Frank Masterpolo wrote a very fascinating piece a few weeks ago about surf in USA um, from the Beach Boys, um, where basically um, I forgot who the, the musician was, but they, they took the melody just straight up from someone without giving them any sort of credit. And then the Beach Boys ended up getting sued. And, and you know, now, like, all the royalties, um, even to this day, I believe, for Surfing USA go to that specific musician. Um, so I think that's one interesting thing. But it's going to lead me into my second point, where, where does influence slash inspiration um, mesh with copyright and, like, actual the actual thing? So, like, let's say if I make a melody that is very similar to a melody that I listen to in, in some song, um, but I change the tone of it, um, either through doing it through a different instrument and, you know, do some things with my computer or whatever, um, and, and, and I don't give the person credit, am I stealing or am I just, you know, being inspired by someone without, like, you know, saying that I was inspired by that someone? And I think with music, it's a little bit challenging because there's so many facets of music that you could actually change. Keith, I want to hear your, your thoughts. Yeah, I, I want to try to tackle this one before Rob joins in. Only because if you're aware that you're pinching it and you're tweaking it, I think you have an obligation to give credit. If you're I, not aware, <laughs> if you're not aware, um, then, you know, that's there's a great story. Rob, you'll remember this from uh, Ray Parker Jr., and the Ghostbusters song. Yeah. Um, Huey Lewis, he claimed, well, they claimed that that song, the theme from Ghostbusters, was a direct ripoff from I Want a New Drug by Huey Lewis in the News. And they took it to court, and Huey Lewis won. To this day, I still don't hear it. I don't hear the connection between the two songs. But so to, I think if you're aware of it, 
I think you have a, a, a back to morality, a moral responsibility to to give credit where credit's due, and however you deem that credit is up to you. But yeah, but if you're unaware, we're all influenced by everything. What you know, I, who knows where it comes from? I don't believe in divine inspiration necessarily. I mean, sitting down is doing the work, and you're influenced by everything that you encounter as writers. What's the one thing you have to do? You have to live your life, right? That's the only way you get information and data to write from, you know? Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. And I think um, just going back to Noah's point first, um, the the article, Frank's article, I believe, was Brian Wilson and Chuck Berry. Mm. I think it was Chuck Berry. Yeah. Brian Wilson, like admitting he wanted to write a Chuck Berry song, Chuck Berry-esque song. And wound up writing a Chuck Berry song. <laughs> um, so I, I'm it was, sure. it's a very good melody. Sure it is, yeah. Because I, I watched the Chuck Berry video, yeah. and, and I was like, "Wow, this is really good." But this is also Surfing USA ripped yeah. off, or, or not ripped off, but the original. Um, <laughs> to, to Keith's point as well, I, I I completely agree. I mean, you know, music is is it's very, and I guess writing as well. You know, but we'll stick to music for now. It's so. It's so hard to be original to the point of no inspiration whatsoever or not sounding like anyone. I remember, um, and this is driving me nuts that I don't remember the title, but Pearl Jam was in trouble for a while. Uh, Led Zeppelin had sued them or wanted to sue them or did sue them, I don't remember, about their song going going to California because there was a Pearl Jam song that had an initial... Uh, riff that that acoustic guitar riff that sounded like that and you can hear the similarities but i mean they're led zeppelin there's their riffs are all blues riffs yeah. so you know like it's i, I you, mike mccready from pearl jam sounds like Jimi hendrix so every guitar solo he plays is he supposed to credit Jimi hendrix on, on the song like i don't know i i agree with keith if you know if you sat in the studio and you said, I want to play a song that sounds like X, not the band X, that's probably, <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to play a song that sounds like the Rolling Stones and you write a riff and the song sounds like satisfaction. Well, you know what? You got to kind of give them credit because you, you just, you, you are ripping it off. But if you're playing something and you're not aware of it and you record it and you play it and people are like, oh, that kind of sounds like, okay. A lot of things sound like a lot of things, mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah, if you know you're doing it, own up to it and, and, and give the credit, you know, because people aren't mus music fans and musicians aren't stupid and the, they have they have ears and they can they can smile yeah. away. Um, so you're better off just kind of copying to it and, and you know, uh, admitting where the inspiration came from. And uh, even with writing, I mean. I'll admit, I hear lines of a song or a conversation maybe with somebody, and I hear a phrase I like, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool, that's yeah. good, and I'll write that down, and then maybe write something completely, op like, has nothing to do with what I heard, but the mm -hmm. snark came from somebody else. Mm. Do I always say that? Do I always put the, I don't know, I, I, I'm sure I have at times, and I'm sure I haven't, I, I don't know what the right thing to do is. I don't know if, like you said, Keith, you know, you just got to live your life and kind of see what happens. You, you know, when you're doing something and you know, when you're not. Yeah. 
what's interesting is like and rob you probably know this better than i do because hip-hop is not my genre Mm -hmm. but if you go uh, there's a point in the early 90s when songwriters were like ho 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 i'm not getting any money from this you guys are sampling all of my music and i'm not getting any money from this and i think there was a real demarcation point in the way hip-hop grew from that because you couldn't use all of these songs like i mean paul's boutique holy cow what a great record right um you know and the songs they sampled i would bet dollars to donuts they didn't pay any royalties they might be doing that now right yeah but but in 1989 90 when it came out uh -uh. nope yeah you're right especially when you're talking about a brand new genre like hip-hop was back in the mid and late 80s Mm-hmm. Um, Paul's Boutique came out when the uh, sample laws hadn't been written. So they were free to do whatever they wanted. And yeah, you're right. They're probably paying st- uh, royalties, you know, years, years later. Um, but, you know, there's also there, there are plenty of musicians whose record contracts had run out. They had been dropped. The record labels, record labels gave the the, the um writes back to the artist and the artist died you know like so there's sometimes you might want to do the right thing and there's no one to do the right thing too you know so there's a lot of work that goes into that but um yeah hip-hop became very very big on the back of sampling and Mm -hmm. it's there's also this this weird thing called ephemeral law and that basically means you can use any song you want, not pay any royalty in a live setting, like in a live telecast. And as long as it's not rebroadcast with the same song, you don't have to pay any royalty. I, I, a friend of mine, he called me up one night. He's like, hey, you guys, I, I worked at NBC at the time. He's like, yeah, you just used a song of mine on, on, the, on the Olympics, like a sample from his. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, nobody contacted me or anything anybody about that so i dug into it that's where i found out about ephemeral law so you can sort of use it and as long as it's not rebroadcast i think they might have narrowed it now to like you can use like three seconds of a song yeah there's a time limit for sure Um, yeah yeah. um there's also a situation where because i know i tried to do this with an album that i released with with an artist who was covering Charles Mingus, the mm-hmm. jazz bass player, oh, nice. uh, but he did it all electronically. So he was play He's a jazz bass player himself, but he was playing, you know, basically EDM music. You know, he, he was playing the bass. Oh, you sent me his record, Rob. Yeah, I did. Yeah, it was and, it was really good. Yeah, I love it. And the rest of the music is all is all uh, programmed and whatnot. But there were Charles Mingus songs, and in order to try and release that album, I sent you I sent you what came out after Noah because we couldn't release the Mingus record. Um, in order to release the Mingus album that we wanted to, we had to contact the copyright owners. And it turns out there were three different entities who owned Charles Mingus recordings, including the Mingus family themselves and then themselves and then other record labels. And it became impossible. It became just like X amount has to go to them, but you can't do this song. We have to listen to it first. If it's not in the vein that like, it was just, whoa, we're just trying to put out this record. Like, you know, we, produce charles mingus to a younger audience this will help you uh and you are getting paid because there's a standard right there's a standard for uh when you when you cover a song and release it 
there's there's a, a, a set standard that usually goes to the to the original songwriter. But when you have three different people owning copyright, it becomes a mess. So you do. And we wound up never being able to release it. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's it, it's funny. You know, you mix the law uh, with art and you get this kind of a mess. But you need it because I think you said this a few minutes ago, Noah, like, you know, these people have to get paid. Yeah. They've got their work. So it's a necessary evil and it's it's hard to, you know, it's it's a big obstacle course to try and figure out how to get through it. You know, there, there, there's so much to think about um, regarding this. Because, like, let's talk about sampling for a second. Like, my childhood was all hip-hop rap, right? And, and, and <laughs> I, I, I think, like, one of the reasons why I, I loved it so much was the sampling. You, you know, um, Eminem, for example, it's so funny. You know, I'm just, like, this, like, little suburban kid who's not even 10 yet. So, like, why the fuck do I like Eminem? Like, if you listen to his lyrics, it's, like, pretty, pretty, uh, a lot of them could be very, very angry. Yeah, right? that's, that's very I'm telling, not, Noah, very telling. Even today, like, <laughs> even today, I'm not, I'm not an angry guy, you know? So, like, his music resonates with me. It, it never resonated with me, basically, I'm trying to say. But I just like listening to it because of the sampling. I, I don't think I've ever listened to a good Eminem song that was not sampled. So it, it it makes me think then when it when it comes to hip hop because you know and, and rap because you know I was only um, a kid at the time and I didn't really know anything about music as much as I just kind of listened to it passively. Um, but I I I I think the appreciation is more towards the lyricism, if that's the case, because I I feel like anyone could do a sample it's so easy especially in this day and age when you could just uh i mean everything is on the cloud you could take something from the cloud and i guess you could put it as a backing track um but i mean if you have shitty lyrics but then again like you have like eight-year-old noah who's just like listening to eminem but i i think eight-year-olds shouldn't be really trusted for their musical judgment compared to someone like uh keith or, or rob I don't know. What do you got? What do you guys think? I don't know. Uh, um, look, I when it comes to hip hop, and whether it's ten year old Noah or forty eight year old Rob, uh, there's something about sampling that, and the reason they do it is, especially if they use popular samples, they're touching, they're they're, they're getting, they're they're hitting your emotion. You know, they're they're sampling songs they. Or a song melody that they know you're gonna like, because you're right. How often is someone gonna listen to you know just some angry lyrics coming out and just rhythm and rhyme? I mean, some people like it, and I like some of that. But you know, samples are used to draw in people who might not want to hear the lyrics as much. They're comfortable. If you hear you know Smokey Robinson, you know sample or a James Brown sample that you're familiar with, you're like oh this is cool. I love this song. And you're going to give the rap song, you know, some consideration now because you've got that going on in the background. It's, it's, you know, mm -hmm. it hit a spot for you that you're familiar with. So you stay, you know, it's like a form of activism in a way. Like if like, if you have lyrics that have social justice, for example, but you're trying to play in front of an audience um, that is like, you know, not really comfortable, you know, hearing that kind of stuff. 
uh, you know, play them a sample of Dream On, which, you know, yeah. Eminem actually did. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's very catchy, and then you'll, you'll rap something. Um, yeah. You know what it's you know what it's like, Noah? It's like when your kid won't eat vegetables, you put them in some mashed potatoes. Yeah, you put you something put, really eat, delicious. Eat mashed potatoes and, and they'll eat it, you know? Like they're getting the good stuff, but it's wrapped up in the in the tasty stuff. And that that's kind of what I think sampling is. Um, but there's hard hitting lyrics minus samples that happen a lot. And I, I fell in love with public enemy when I was thirteen, fourteen years old. You know, mm-hmm aren't really using samples at all it was just chuck d's booming voice and you know his socially it was like punk rock to me it was a different sounding punk rock um and and i like but i also like paul's so go figure speaking of chuck d and punk rock did you ever listen he hosted a uh, podcast about the clash i listened to it yep yeah quite good yeah Yeah. and have drawn that connection but it was interesting no what what they what he does is i guess he was always told that to rob's point public enemy was very punk and that there was a lot of similarities in the way that the clash did their music as like public enemy did theirs and i'm not a public enemy scholar by any stretch but it was a fascinating podcast and fuck he's always pretty he is. He's, he's, he's got a great voice, number one, and he's, he's very easy to listen to. He's very bright. Um, and he's a, he became, and I don't know if he was a fan of punk rock as a younger kid. I probably read about it when at some point, but forgot by now. So I don't know when he became a fan of Joe Strummer in The Clash. I don't know if it was prior to him being public enemy or after, like you said, Keith, where people were telling him, you know. Um, but there are similarities. And it, it resonated with me because... I don't know. The sound of the music has nothing to do with each other, but just the delivery, you know, um, the the confidence, the the anger, uh, and the need and the want, you know, to do something good for people to just get along. Uh, it was all there. And Public Enemy to this day, I think, really, really important band um, in not just hip-hop, but in music overall. Absolutely. What's Public Enemy's legacy? I, I don't really know so much about them. Well, it, look, basically, what Keith and I just said, it, it, they were a socially conscious hip-hop band, or are, they're still together, um, that delivered it in a way that was always likened to, you know, to punk rock, or even rock, but more, more punk rock in the clash. Um, social justice, um, equality, black rights, um, civil rights, women's rights, you know, basically, you know, any, anything that was oppressive, you know, they were against and they wanted you to know about it. Um, mm. And in my opinion, I think Chuck D along with, um, with KRS-One mm. uh, are two guys that were able to articulate the, that message where other people in that genre couldn't. And they did a ton for 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 hip hop and rap, um, so I think their legacy is is they're 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 an innovator and they they are one of the most important bands in all of music in my. No, I agree, and, uh, and also I mean, I think there's the whole production value. They they, I forget what is the name of their production group. Was it 
Shockwave or Shock something. Oh, like the S1Ws? Uh, no, not no. The, the, who are the guys? Hank Shockley? Oh, Hank Shockley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the way they produce their music. But again, I'm far from a scholar on that stuff. So, but. No, no they're but, undeniably one of the most important bands in music history. Yeah, yeah. But you, you've said that a couple of times about yourself now, Keith, and I, I, I actually disagree. I mean, the way you write about music, um, I, I, I kind of get the feeling that you know, sound and 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 production and arrangements of songs are you know really important to you, and you write about it. Oh, so well. you have to. I think you might need to give yourself a little more credit for. They're critical. I mean, I, I hate, there's nothing, Rob, you're a punk guy. I've always had a hard time with punk music because I like my music produced. Yeah. Now, what I mean by that is if, if that means that it's a very sparse production, that's fine. But I, I have friends that are in punk bands and they'll play their stuff and I'm like, there's a melody in there. Why not exploit that? Take a little time and exploit that. Well, that's not punk. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, to me it is. But using, I think, a studio and good production can be as much of a tool as bass, drums, guitar, and vocal. Yeah. And, and how that's used and how that is expressed between the artist and the producer you know, varies, but um, no, you're right. I, 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 I am, and I'm, I'm a lyric guy. I love good lyrics. They don't have to be deep or, or anything. They just have to be good, yeah. and that's subjective, right? It is. It you is. Um, to your point, though, about production, it you can find it in any genre, and I do understand where people say about punk rock. Oh, well, it's supposed to be gritty and dirty, and it doesn't have to sound great. And we we can be out of tune. It's it's kind of the whole ethos of it. Which I don't, I mean, as a kid, maybe I bought more than I, I, I bought. I buy now. Um, because one of my favorite bands of all time, forget about punk bands, is Bad Religion. And mm-hmm. Bad Religion's albums are produced tremendously. I mean, they're, they're, they're it, you know, the, the, the later ones, not the early 80s necessarily. But, you know, from the late 80s on, their, their production is great. And they do it for the reasons you're talking about. They know they have melody. They have three-part harmonies in their songs. They have great guitar lines, and their lyrics are some of the most educational and intellectual lyrics you'll ever find in any band, and they want you to hear it. So they produce the hell out of the record so you can hear it. Um, but yeah, there's a stigma and a, and a, and a, a class of, of punk rock fans that, that will, will be you know, more towards the, the, the ugly-sounding, loud, you know fuck you attitude you know and it has its place but i i'm i'm more into production for sure than uh than i might have been 30 years ago (laughs) i think i get older right yeah yeah (laughs) no i can't really say oh sorry go ahead go ahead no um, I, I can't really say much about this be, be because to Rob's point, it does have its place. And, and, and you know, in, in my mind, like, I, I do really want to say badly, like, well, fuck that, because the music should sound really good. Right. But at, at the same time, you know, maybe if I, I read more about that ethos um, and maybe if I knew more people who, who, who thought um, in that domain of thinking, then I would have 
more sympathy for them and maybe I would see what its place is. Um, and I also think I'm definitely not good enough of a musician <laughs> to be like, you know, your your music sucks, you know, like. Well, I think to our, our point earlier, these studio musicians have a career and Rob, you probably know this as well. A band can come in and they might be great live, but they can't cut it in a studio. And you've well, only I... got time. It's expensive in a studio. If I've only got four hours and I've got a bass player who just can't get it, I'm going to get a studio musician for an hour who can bang out what I need him to do. You yep. know, that's his business, right? Yep. No, you're, you're a, a recorded song and a live song almost have nothing to do with each other. They're so different. The reason you record a song is different than the reason you play it live. You know, the live show is about energy. It's about spontaneity. It's about the crowd. If you fuck up, you fuck up. Nobody really cares necessarily. Everybody's having a great time. You're in the flow. But yeah, Keith, you're right. If you're in the middle of a recording session and one of the players can't hack it, they got to go. Yep. You know, too much time, too much money. And this, this kind of leads me back to a point that we were talking about prior to the show when Noah scolded us for, for <laughs> wasting some, uh, some precious uh, discussion. When I was growing up, when, when you were growing up, Keith, uh, we have the, the luxury of going to CBGBs and being in New York City. I know, you know, we talked about where you've lived in several places, but I grew up in New York and, you know, CBGBs had tremendous sound for such a little tiny club, but it was so loud, but it made... It, it, it made the environment like it, it made it made your night. Um, those bands, most bands that played there probably couldn't record a record for shit. Not the national acts, but, you know, yep. some of the they probably couldn't record at all. But you walk into CBs and you get the sound and you get the, 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 the volume and you have the best night of your life. And that's that's the difference, at least to me. Great. What do you guys think about that, though? Like. Don't you don't you find I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here um, for any punk rockers who might be listening to this and hate my guts um, in the future. But don't 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 you think that it, in a way that's kind of like hiding behind the technology that's available? I think it can be. But if the technology is there, why not use it as a tool, as a resource? You use a, I know nothing about guitars. You use a Wawa pedal, right? You use a tuner to tune your guitar. You can tune it by ear. Might take a little longer, but you use a tool to make it quicker and better. There's no harm in that, I don't think. But I know there are countless people who disagree with me. Well, I, it, it varies because I, I do tend to agree for the most part that if you have technology, you should use it. Um, you know, everything is produced now by Pro Tools. You know, <laughs> back in the day, they produced on tape. They recorded to tape and you had to, they were better players back then because you just had to, there were no, like the tape eventually ran out. You couldn't keep asking the producer to cut and splice and cut and splice. It just did. You had a finite amount of time and it made the players, you know, play better. And they were probably just better anyway. Nowadays you have pro tools and cut and paste and patch things in. The only thing I don't like about technology when it comes to recording music is that it's accessible that anybody can do it and just because you can do it doesn't mean you should because you're not trained and the one thing i'll say about um 
specific items or specific types of technology. I cannot stand auto tune when it comes. Oh, right. <laughs> I know, I know you can't. Yeah, I, as far as like guitars and tuning and you know getting different sounds and maybe even creating drum beats if you don't have a drummer necessarily or the drummer can't pull off what you're trying to do, that's all well and good. I mean, look at Nine Inch Nails, right? That, that yeah. you know, good example. But you know, vocally, you know, just just sing. You know, auto tune just uh, that that doesn't do it for me. But yeah, if you've got the technology, use it to your advantage and and you know find a nice medium where where you just you know stop it you know there, use it to stop. your point about the tape i mean the, some of the i'll just give you one example do yourselves a favor and listen to cat stevens song bitter blue just the guitar intro you'll hear a mistake yeah. it's quite audible and that became i think it was a hit signal and then if you listen to like any of eric clapton's songs or albums from like the mid 70s you know before he got sober his work with tom dowd you can yeah. hear bum notes in there. Sure. You know, for that very reason. It's like, how often can you keep recording, cutting, splicing? It's a tedious process. Yeah. You yeah. know? It, it takes away from the magic of, of the moment. And if you make a mistake in that moment, but it's still sort of magical somehow, um, let it be. Just yeah. let it be. It's about emotion. It's about what it makes you feel and so what you hit a sour note i mean you didn't press hard enough down on the on the on the fret i mean okay it's just it, it's okay <laughs> you know i i don't think i've ever been to a live show maybe with the exception of rush maybe but it was a long time ago and i i don't know if i really remember but i remember leaving a rush show once being like did they just play live or did they just play their record because yeah. it's so spot on but any other live show i've been to and there's been hundreds of them you hear it. You hear the mistakes. You know, somebody's off. Somebody's timing's off. Somebody misses a note. Somebody flubs a lyric. Um, shit, somebody forgets an entire verse. It happens. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Hey, that, that's what music is. It's not meant to be perfect. Do you remember when The Who did the Super Bowl halftime thing? Uh, In Florida. Yeah. There was a lot of controversy around that because really? they're... Yeah, well nerd controversy the theory <laughs> that only about 30 percent of the vocal that you heard was roger daltrey and about 70 percent of it was a track so he was singing to a track and the majority of it was the track and that's disappointing but the guy's what 70 something years old yeah i don't know they hit the same notes good lord when he was 25 30 it's impossible yeah. but the other side of the coin is uh, you feel cheated. I feel cheated. If I know going in that I'm going to see an artist that is going to sing to a track more than they're going to sing live, I don't. I can't think of one off the top. I'm sure I could, but I'm not going to. Um, then okay. But if I'm going to see an artist, you know, like Van Halen. The last time I saw Van Halen, David Lee Roth. David Lee Roth couldn't sing when he was younger. Right. He can't sing even more now, but there was no track. That was him. Yep. That was all him, you know? And, oh, no, sorry, no. I, I just, I, I just wanted to say it was, it's a great point because you can't expect certain people as they age to do what they did in their teens and 20s and 30s even 
in their 60s and 70s. There's just there's just no way. And some of the artists, what they do to compensate instead of singing to a track. And I think this is probably the way to go. If you go if you go to a show and the band has four or five members and nine people are on stage. Well, you've got a couple of, you know, touring players and some backup singers and they're they're picking up the slack for some of that stuff. That's a better way to do it than to sing to a track. You know, use backing vocals. You use vocalists, you know, hire people to sing with you, not for you. Um, and that changes the, the, because you're still getting everything that performer has with a little bit of help, but it's not the track. I, I appreciate when they do that as opposed to using the track. I'm sorry, Noah, that was just. All I, no, I was going to say a stupid, stupid remark. I was just going to say that, you know, it happened in Florida and everything is legal in Florida, um, including cheating. Um, <laughs> citizens but of think... Florida get regularly cheated by our shit for governor, Ron DeSantis. But that's a whole, we're, I'm not trying to make this a political podcast, but. Um, I yeah. think that's, <laughs> that's what makes Octung Baby such an important record. Because Bono couldn't sing the way he had been singing for the previous 10 years. Right. He was, and he, he's not a great singer, but he's a good singer. Mm -hmm. um, but the, I think Octung Baby was such a departure on so many different levels, but it gave him a different way to sing. Yeah. Where he wasn't going to shred his vocals. Right. And it, it redefined their career. You know? It did. And isn't, isn't that honestly in any genre or any type of art, isn't that what an artist is? I mean, if they're not always evolving and changing, yeah. you know, is I, when I was a kid, I remember, and I was guilty of this sometimes too, but I remember people wanting the same song and the same album from a band year after year after year. And I get it. You fall in love with the song, you fall in love with the sound, but man, like they don't want to do that. The musicians don't want to do that. They want to create and do something different as time goes on. And you're right. Sometimes they're smart. Like, and maybe this was the discussion with you two. Who knows? But maybe they were like, you know what? We want to change. We're writing different styles of music and different songs. And by the way, it helps Bono sing better because he, he can't really do what he was doing before. So everybody wins. You know, what's wrong with that? Nothing. Yeah. I, I do want to, I do want to, I just read your, your review on Pearl Jam's Verses. Yeah unquestionably my favorite record mm. but wouldn't you say rob that it is so strikingly similar to 10 in it's in the kind of songs they wrote yes not in the production though no no not in the production Agreed. yeah the type of songs yeah it was um yeah they had they had the heavy songs the fast songs then they slowed it down and had a couple of ballads and some of the the, the moodier songs. A a absolutely. And I think, and the guys in Pearl Jam have said this, if 10 wasn't as, um, produ it, 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 I forgot how they better described it, glossy or, or, or shiny, but if, if 10 didn't have that shine to it, let's just say, I think 10 in verses would sound identical. So you're right. Yeah. Uh, the songs were pretty similar, but I think the production saved it from being the exact same record. Yeah. I think, Brendan O'Brien went back and remastered 10. If I don't, if I don't he did. He did. And it's a better version. Oh, absolutely. It's no a point. much better. Yeah. 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 But but now, if you listen to Pearl Jam, uh, or even I mean, Vitology was quite different for the most part. But then they really went off the, the deep end with their sound. As, as 
I think most bands want to do. I think, you know, writers included, painters, uh, um, poets, mm-hmm. actors, you know, they just want to do something different once in a while. Then that's, that, that's what keeps it fresh and interesting, I think. You don't have to like it all. No. Yeah. You don't want and to I be not typecasted like in any field. What's that? No. You don't want to be typecasted in any field. No. That's absolutely true. I, I, I think it's as a writer, like like when we write, whether we write articles or we write in your case, if you're writing plays, um, that might be harder to get away from because it's such a longer process in writing a song. You yeah. know, um, songs can have three minutes of inspiration. It can come from anywhere where you're writing something longer. You might kind of just fall back into who you are. That might mm-hmm. be tougher to, 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 to change. Do you guys agree? I agree wholeheartedly. Yep. I mean, I, I, I don't write plays anymore. Um, and the last play I wrote was such a departure from anything I had written that, my, uh, you know, the person who directed it, she was like, you've never written anything like this before. I was like, I know. And uh, that was the last play I wrote. But, yeah. Have you, uh, in that, following that, are you... Um... Is it the last play because you just haven't done another one, or you decided you're you're done? You don't want to do it. Well, there's no money in theater, um, so and I'd like to make a living as a writer. So, yeah, <laughs> literally no money in theater. Wow, that's such a and shame. I, yeah, no, it's 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 true. I mean, look at what's on Broadway now. That's where the money is, and it's not to say you can't make a living. I looked at going to get uh, a master's. Uh, degree in playwriting from Yale, which would have cost, you know, upwards of a quarter of a million dollars, right? One of the best schools in the, in the world. But if I came out of there, the high end you could expect to make is like 40 grand. Wow. Oh, wow. Playwright. And it's like that. Not when you're tagging along a quarter of a million dollars in debt. Nope. Not feasible. 40 grand a year. And that's working. That's assuming you can get the work. Yeah. Oh, dude, that's disgusting. Like for that much student debt, like. Yeah, it's that's crazy. You would expect that, like, if you took that much student debt, you would at least make like, I don't know, like more than that. <laughs> but at the same time, theater is one of the most vibrant and like off off Broadway is just incredible. You see amazing performances. Anytime my plays went up, people would be like, "Where did you get these actors?" I'm like, "It's New York City." Yeah, loaded with talent. Yeah, anywhere you look, whether it's music, whether it's a fiction writer, a poet, an actor, a playwright, a screenwriter, it's just incredible. All you got to do is just make half an effort, and you'll find amazing stuff there. Yeah, and that's why it's so fucked right now because you're pricing out all this talent. And it's a shame that if you think about what art does, you know. Think about how you feel when you listen to a great record or see a great play or a film or read a great book. You're inspired and you do you you at least I feel like this. I, I feel like I'm a better person because of it. And the yeah. people who helped create that, if they're not getting competent, they should be getting a ton of money for it. They're, they're changing lives. You know, I mean, not to not to over dramatize it, but they are in, in a way. If it, if somebody if you if you consume some art whatever it might be and it changes your life for the better and you go on to do something great 
Well, that's pretty damn important. You know, that's- and to get 40 grand and like you said, to find the work and oh, 250. Well, shit, no one's going to do it. That's why with music, I argue all the time that people really need to pay for music and pay for it often because indie musicians cannot survive and create music continually and never get paid for it. They're going to stop just like you. You, you know, you, you talked about stopping, right? I mean, I, I can't imagine the, the, the hole that might leave in some people who, who know and like your work and to never read a word from you again in the form of a play. But how can they blame you? Yeah, I mean, that's a valid point. Um, yeah, which, which begs the question, Rob, where do you land on streaming? Hmm. <laughs> I, it's it's pretty i I mean i'm gonna my answer will be simple but it's never really simple i like it for discovery but i hate it for everything else um they don't pay anything they're still run by the major labels the deals with the streaming companies major labels you know still run and decide it's basically top 40 radio just times five million you know they dictate what we listen to or what we hear the, the most um and they've, it's almost trained people not to pay for music or think it's free. Even though you may be paying your monthly subscription, but you don't feel it. You don't see it. You know, the nine bucks a month is probably hooked up to your credit card or your checking account. And it just kind of comes out with other bills. So yep. you don't see it and, and you think music is free. Um, for Discovery, though, I like it because, and Noah, this is something I think you and I have talked about, but you didn't experience it. And Keith and I definitely have. When we were kids, in order to discover something outside of radio, you had to walk to your friend's house with albums in your hand and say, hey, let's listen to these records. And he came over your house and he played his records. And that's how you discovered new stuff outside of the radio. So that was kind of difficult. So discovery is good. Streaming is good for discovery, but I think it's horrific for everything else. And speaking of discovery, that's one thing. The Counting Crows is circling back to the crows, but they always thanked artists I had never heard of before. Like there's a line off Recovering the Satellites or, you know, where he makes a reference to listening to Ben Folds. So I'm like, all right, well, who's Ben Folds? And this is before Ben Folds broke. And I was like, all right, I got to find out who this guy is. And he did it just, well, the band did it on their Instagram thing just last week or the week before. He made a rec- he recognized some band, an album that he was listening to, and then the band got all giddy and reposted it, and then Adam Duritz reposted it, and you know, and that's that's another way of discovering is just because every artist you listen to, regardless of whether they're punk, country, they have their origins somewhere. It's not like they just pulled something out of thin air, and mm-hmm. somewhere in there, whether you're listening and you hear whether it's a Mingus or whether you hear it's a Clash tune or something, it's like okay, well. I've heard that before. For example, there's something on the new Counting Crows record. I know I've heard it before. Not from them. I've right. heard them before. And I just, it's driving me bananas that I can't figure out where, where it's from. But, you know, everything comes from somewhere. Yep. You know. You're so right. No, we've had this conversation, I think, on the podcast before with, I forget which which guest. I'm sorry, I don't remember which one. But we, we talked about this a lot because it is so amazingly true. The... The greatest discoveries can come from musicians you like. Um, And to me, it's some of the most interesting ways to discover music. 
you can have it through friends. You can have it through older sisters or parents or brothers or whatever. Um, but when you really like a band or an artist and you find out who they like, it, it, yeah, it gives you so much more, you know, I don't know. Uh, you, you become inspired to go find out and, and learn about that band because, hey, if they influence this band and I love this band, I need to know. And a lot of times they sound nothing like the band that you like. Right. You know, it's just something that did it for them. And that's great that Counting Crows do that because, uh, you know, like we talked about earlier, they've been around for such a long time and they have their place in music history and they've, they've done, um, they're one of the bands that made it, you can say. You know, they, they, they made it. They, 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 they did it. And I guess this is a way of giving back. Yeah. It's great. And I wrote about it in the article. It's like when you see them live, it's like they're playing for their fans, but they're also playing, I, I feel, as fans themselves, they're fans of music, their music, and and I think that comes through when you see them play. It doesn't, at least when I've seen them, I've only seen them live once, and that was at the Beacon, and let's say I don't remember it that much. Um, <laughs> but I've seen clips, and they really look like they're enjoying themselves, you yeah. know? And that's, yeah. nothing beats that. No. No, you know? it's, I, I mean, I, I, there's really nothing I can add because I completely agree. And, and I know Noah and I have talked about this a ton about, you know, where music comes from or where inspiration comes from. And I always quote the Beastie Boys back to them again. Um, they have that lyric, uh, only 12 notes a man can play. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's, it's, it's almost as simple as that, yet really difficult to pull off. <laughs> Uh, but everything comes from somewhere and it the, the the rabbit hole you can go down with this stuff is just tremendous um the so, same storytelling no matter what no matter what genre you're using right we have man versus man man versus nature man versus yeah i think there's like five i forget them clearly i don't remember them but there's only like really five stories that you can tell yeah yeah i mean this is this is not uh, I, I, I would hope it's not foreign to, to a lot of people, but I guess maybe it is. It's, you know, and, and, and Noah, not, not to pick on your generation because I'm not that guy. I'm not the get off my lawn guy. I'm, I still act like a child. <laughs> um, but I do wonder if, you know, this kind of history or this kind of thought about history and where things come from, is it a thing for people that you're around in your age group or mm -hmm. friends? But now you're you're like an older soul anyway, so I, I don't I don't put you in that category by any stretch. But I wonder, do twenty somethings you know care about where something came from, or are they just happy that it's here? No, no, we we totally give a shit. Mm -hmm. I, I, I I think it's just I, I think it's just the state of the economy of digital products right now. We just we we consume and we don't think about it and that's it. But people still wonder. Well, why, why do you think? Why, why why do you think we have um, terms like Wikipedia rabbit holes, right? You know, like your guys' generation was um it, it was the six degrees the cat bacon. My generation is Wikipedia rabbit holes. Okay. People, people still give a shit about where shit comes from. Why that's is it that? I started reading a Wikipedia 
about um <laughs> like let's like this is just like a random you know not true example but it could very well be true like why is it that i i read a wikipedia of um you know the black eyed peas and i ended up um reading a wikipedia about the roman empire like 20 minutes later <laughs> i mean the, the the reason why is that let's say um you, you know, I, I look at one of the members of the Black Eyed Peas on their Wikipedia. I see that, let's say, they're religious with Christianity. And I'm like, curious, oh, you know, I'm in the mood to read about Christianity. So you click that Wikipedia and then you read about Christianity and its rise in the Roman Empire. And then that's how you, you get there. You know, like, um, you know, I, I could speak. I'm speaking for myself, but I'm definitely speaking for, for plenty of other Gen Z's and millennials. Um, we totally care about where shit is from. I think the problem is that we live in this landscape of digital products that just wants to give us the unit. Um, and, and that's it because we just live in this ridiculously consumerist culture, um, that cares way more about ourselves than other people or histories. Well, I'm very, I'm very glad that that's the case. So there's, there's hope. Yes. And on that note, let, we'll end on a, a G. Um, <laughs> it was a pleasure recording this podcast with you, Keith and Rob. Um, all credit of whoever said whatever. Um, <laughs> go to whoever said that and music credits go to me. Um, and again, yeah, thank you so much. We really enjoyed your company. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, this was- yeah, thank you. Bye.